Well, we are back in our Revelation series, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. And I wanted to just take a minute to um, just recap really briefly sort of the, the two main things that we've kind of, that summarize this series and the book so well. Um, John captures the revelation of Jesus Christ while in worship on the island of Patmos where he was a prisoner. And the, um, the overarching theme or temptation of the church at that time was compromise and complacency. And I think that those two things could probably still be the temptations that we face today as the Church of Christ. But John brings this book, the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ as a, to bring awareness to, to open the church's eyes to the potential for complacency and for compromise as if they were two ditches on either side. One side is complacency and just growing casual and comfortable. And then compromise is the, just the choices, just simply making choices that lead us astray. So that is what Revelation brings to us. But the bigger, most better, most beautifulest of all is the opportunity and the summary to behold Jesus. The book of Revelation is a picture that Jesus himself paints and gives in vision to John about who he is. And when we look at the book of Revelation, we have an opportunity to behold Jesus. Our natural response when we behold Jesus is worship and it's witness. As I've been reading through um, this particular passage that we're gonna go through this week, I just kept reminding myself that when this letter was given to John, I think it was in like 96 AD, um, the Jesus who is speaking is the risen victorious savior. It's not a letter like in the Gospels where he's walking, you know, like in, on earth and pre-cross. The, the Jesus speaking in Revelation is the one who has already conquered death. And as he says in chapter one, I hold the keys to death and Hades. So when we hear his voice in this chapter, we are listening to the risen and victorious Jesus. Isn't that isn't that insane, actually? Like, isn't that crazy? Because if that's true, <laughs> it changes absolutely everything. If Jesus Christ really did raise from the dead, if this book really was inspired and spoken from the risen Jesus, it should transform everything in our lives it should be the most welcome and good news that we have ever heard. Man, that's powerful. We're gonna get into, um, over the next, I think, seven weeks, 
we're gonna be covering the seven messages to the seven churches, or the seven lampstands, as Pastor Mike talked about a couple weeks ago. Um, and we're just gonna cover one of those messages each week. So I just wanna give you a little intro to that. Um, hey, Troy, if you could take the gain down on this just a smidge, because my hand is uh, pretty, making a lot of noise, thanks. Um, so the intro to the seven messages to the seven churches. First thing is in Revelation, the number seven is the book of completion. So we ask why, are, why seven? Um, I think simply it's the whole church, the complete church, that the book and these messages is for the entire church to hear and to behold. That's you and me. That's everybody who is a believer in Jesus Christ. So the seven messages, though they are delivered specifically to the church in Ephesus or um, Laodicea or all the other seas and oceans and all the things, um, it's for you and it's for me. It's for the church today. It's for the church that has been and it is still relevant. Each message, though it is for the whole church, is so beautifully crafted by Jesus um, specifically for the congregation that he addresses in that message. And I'll explain a little bit of that for you today with, with the book of Ephesus, uh, the, the church of Ephesus, actually. Um, it's very interesting, and yet it really is relevant for, for the whole. Um, they all kind of carry a similar pattern. So you'll hear Jesus say, I think we have a chart for this, Chris, um, he, he gives an aspect of who he is. So in, in chapter one, he talks, John talks about he, how he saw the one who um, had fire in his eyes and he was holding the, the seven stars and et cetera. So he begins each of the messages with sharing a different aspect of who he is. And then he gives praise or a, a report kind of on the condition of the church of that specific uh, group that he was speaking to. Then he offers a warning, and then he gives a promise. And this is for, like, there's a couple exceptions, and you'll discover those as we go over the next seven weeks. But it's, it's intentional, the way that Jesus crafts these messages. His communication is intentional. And something that's interesting, for these seven messages, he actually creates a completely new genre of writing, um, it's, I don't have the name for it because I didn't write it down, but he uses two different kinds of writing and combines the two. The first is um, when he talks about, um, these are the words, he, it kind of, it's sort of a thus saith the Lord when he starts each of the messages, and that would be kind of a, a, a prophetic oracle, like when, the, when God would speak to the the Jewish nation, the, the, to the Israelites. Um, it would be kind of a thus saith the Lord. So it's a prophetic oracle. He's speaking to the Israelites. He's speaking to his people who know him. But then the way that the rest of the messages unfold, he's actually communicating in a way that was exactly the same as uh, a king would have given to the royal edicts of the time. So he would have written a letter or a message to a, a, a municipality 
And it would be laid out exactly as Jesus lays out these messages, the praise of what they're doing well, and then the warning of what they need to do better, um, and then the, the consequences of not correcting your ways, and then the promise. So in doing that, Jesus is saying, I'm speaking to the Israelites, I'm speaking to the Gentiles, I'm speaking to you, I'm speaking to you, I'm speaking to the whole. But what he's also saying is, I am God and I am king. I am king of kings. And therefore, I will communicate to you as both. And what a wonderful, amazing picture. So that's kind of the breakdown of the seven messages um, to the seven churches. He reveals who he is in all of this. This week, we're going to cover the book of um, the, the church of Ephesus. Revelation chapter two, verse one to seven. Um, a couple of things I just wanna tell you really quickly about the church in Ephesus, um, or about Ephesus actually. Ephesus was built and surrounded around the temple of Artemis, um, or the Romans called her Diana. It was, uh, she was the fertility goddess. And at the center of her temple, there was a garden. And in this beautiful garden, there was a tree that was the focal point. This tree um, was kind of a, a place of asylum. People could come. If you were a criminal, you could, if you got within a certain distance of it, you would be forgiven of your, your crime. Or if you had debts, you would be forgiven of your debts. So this tree place, it had really high importance in Ephesus. And it was built around a god. Ephesus, the church at the time, was the most influential church in the churches, in early Christian church history. Um, the church of Ephesus was an example of faith, life, and love. For centuries, actually, for centuries, it embodied the profoundly countercultural way of Christ. It was filled with some of the cream of the crop at that time. <laughs> if you think back, like if you look at, you know, like um, t rosters, like on, on professional teams, um, the Church of Ephesus was birthed by Paul. It was cultivated by Priscilla and Aquila. Timothy pastored it for a while, and then the Apostle John took over pastoring, who brought along Mary, the mother of Jesus, who was at the church in Ephesus. Like, talk about the all-star team, right? This church was at the top of its game. It was the leading influence amongst this very early Christian uh, organization or beliefs or, or system. So those are some things to keep in context while we go through this. Let's read Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write this. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them to be false. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen, Repent and do the things you did at first. 
If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We're gonna hear more about that um, when we get to the church of Pegasus. Or it's not Pegasus, because that's a horse (laughs) in Greek mythology. (laughs) Pergamum. I think it's Pergamum. We'll learn more about the Nicolaitans. Continuing on, verse 7, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is such a a beautiful passage. I'm going to put my Bible here. I'm going to take a drink of water. You don't need play-by-play on that, but. Jesus covers a lot of things in this, in these few verses to the church in Ephesus. But the main problem is that the church had forsaken their first love, love. The one thing that brought them together in the first place was being forgotten. We like to call this, some scholars call it the Ephesus problem. Ephesus had all the markings and the trappings of a successful church. They were doing all the things. They had the deeds. They had the, the roster of the cream of the crop leaders. They probably had the best messages on Sunday and the most lively worship. They had an orthodoxy or a right way of living that was beautiful and right grounded in wisdom and the ways of Jesus. They endured in their suffering. They didn't grow weary. Jesus praises all of these things. And then he says, but they had fallen out of love and simple devotion, out of affection and out of intimacy. The church in Ephesus looked like Christians, but had forgotten Jesus. In sharing this letter with the church of Ephesus, he's giving a warning. He's warning them that they've gotten caught up in the minutia. They've gotten caught up in the details, in the things that, you know, I don't know, I think about life today in church, in like church life and stuff, and some of the things we end up spending our time on they're just not the things that we're gonna say on that day or in the darkest hour, gosh, I'm just so glad I voted for conservatives (laughs) or insert whatever else. You know, we get caught up in the things that were not what brought us to our faith in the first place. And Jesus, all those years ago, when he sends this message to the church in Ephesus, he's sending it because it's already begun amongst that group. And it's alive and well today in the church amongst us. Have you ever gotten caught up in the minutia? Have you ever gotten caught up in the details or perhaps a little distracted? Has your focus ever shifted? The Bible talks about it in Hebrews as a slow drift. It says, remember, remember the things 
of old. Remember what you have heard, lest you drift away. It seems confusing that Jesus would send this message to the church in what seemed to be their prime. But remember, we're, we're looking, we're, we're hearing from the risen Jesus. We're, re, we're hearing from the risen Lord, the one who sees all things and knows all things, and he sees the pattern and the slow drift that has already begun. Earl Palmer says, the Ephesus problem happens quietly and by gradual imperceptible shift of focus. The letter to the Ephesians is a warning to you and I today. Or a question, have we forsaken our first love, love? And what do we do to get that back? Jesus tells us three things. He tells us to remember, to repent, and to redo. Remembering is when you take that moment, if you're, if you're married and you're gonna have an anniversary or you know, like I did today, reading through that book and remembering that first love, remembering what it felt like, what those feelings felt like. Repentance is a big word and I think it sometimes has been misunderstood as a big heavy shaming and con condemning type of word where we're supposed to like sit in shame for a measure of time and then it's over and we've repented. But what repentance really is, is just changing your thinking. Boiled down, that's the simplest, truest definition of the word. It's just to turn around. Um, I'm, a, I'm a new kayaker, but I kayak. Um, so sometimes the wind causes you to drift a little further away than you were anticipating. One of the best ways to turn a, a boat around is to stick your paddle in and hold tight and just let the boat turn. The paddle does the work and you just can turn all the way around. That's repentance. Repentance is realizing that, oh, we've got a little bit further away than we had anticipated and sticking the paddle in the water to turn around and go back in the direction that you were planning on going. That's repentance. It's easy. And then redo. Jesus says to return to the things that you once did. I wonder what that would have felt like for the church in Ephesus. I wonder, I wonder what it would have felt like for their first love. I wonder what returning to the things they once did would have looked like. Because he actually says they're doing so many really great things. But return to the things you once did. And I, I kind of, you know, that's a little confusing because he's saying they're doing really awesome things, but then he tells them return to what they first did. There's something different. There's something different when you're in first love, love. When you're in first love, love, you do all the things, but they come from a place of overflow. They come out of this like, intense desire to be a student of that person that you're in love with. They come out of this um, overwhelming sense of newfound joy and freedom. And it's not a burden, it's not a list, it's life and it's alive. 
It's so important for us to remember, to repent and to redo. Friends, I wanna tell you, as I told you uh, in the introduction, that Ephesus, the church, was the leading, most influential church at the time. The church in Ephesus is no more. If you look at modern day Turkey and, and where the Ephesus was, there is no church there today. And if there are any Christians, they're likely in hiding. It's in modern day Turkey. The first love fizzled. The first love drifted. Without the first love, everything that we do in our works and in our efforts, in our good Christian walk, is unsustainable. It's unsustainable. Service and devotion become duty. Generosity becomes miserly or rigid and legalistic. Our orthodoxy, our right living, the, the, the morals and the, 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 the values that we live by get caught up in legalism and tangled in the minutia. Molehills become mountains that feel insurmountable, and some of them we feel like we're willing to die on when they really should just remain a molehill. Perseverance turns into weariness. Worship becomes selfish and empty. But when the fire of first love is strong, it catches other things on fire. When the wind blows, the fire gets stronger. It's not blown out like a birthday candle. When our first love, love is a flame within us, all of these things come out of the overflow. Um, I remember, <laughs> as we talk about remembering, when I was a teenager, that was the time in my life where I would say that my life was most aflame and on fire for Jesus. And every time I have sat down this week to try to write this message, um, I had to, I couldn't go on. I stopped, I had to stop and just kind of cry a little and not in shame but in longing for those days as I remembered my first love. Every single Tuesday morning for years at 5 a.m., I'd get up and go to 5 a.m. prayer with my dad, pray for an hour, and I loved it. I couldn't wait. Monday nights, I was like, I gotta go to bed at seven o'clock because I gotta be up at 4.30. I passionately worshiped Jesus at every opportunity that I had. At that time, our church was in a bit of a renewal, a revival, so to speak, and um, we had three Sunday morning services, identical. And I could sit through three identical services, same songs, same announcements, same jokes, same preach, and I, I can feel, I remember the feeling of sitting in that service for the third time, and it was like I was hearing it for the first. Every word I just drank in, 
every song we sang, it was like, oh, I love this one, yes. And we'd already sung it twice before. It didn't matter because I was in love with Jesus. Everything felt alive. Everything felt like food to my soul. I led so many friends to the Lord in high school. <laughs> and I was really nice about it. Like, you know, I wasn't preaching hellfire and brimstone. We did that on Sunday nights, right, Dad? If you're watching. <laughs> it was an overflow. I would say, you gotta come experience this. I remember one friend, he moved from South Africa, he didn't know anybody, and he came to high school, and he was new, and his name was Andre. And I said, Andre, you gotta come, come. We just became friends, we were good friends. And, and so he came to church with me on a Sunday night, and those were our, our revival services, and he just got so saved. He found Jesus. <laughs> and he's a pastor now doing amazing, amazing things for the Lord. And that's not on me. That's the overflow of the love of Jesus that was alive in my life at that time. I still do a lot of those things that I did back then, reading my Bible diligently and spending time in prayer. But you know what I mean when there's a feeling that's different? You know what I mean when it, it goes from like, this burning passion, like first love is a student. When, when Mike and I started dating, I wanted to know everything about him. I wanted to know what his favorite color was. I wanted to hear every story from his grandparents, from his crazy aunts, from, you know, like I was a student. I wanted to know he does, they're lovely aunts. They're not like actually crazy. They're just very <laughs> fun, fun loving. But I wanted to know everything about him. First love, love is a student. It's a yes in your heart because absolutely I'll go to bed at two in the morning if we can spend one more moment together. That's the feeling. That's what first love is. Jesus writes us a letter saying, don't forget about your first love because you can do all the things and it'll look really good on paper, but it's not sustainable without that flame. And what is that flame? It's Jesus. Jesus is our first love, love. Jesus is the one in whom everything else hangs in the balance of. Jesus is God and King. He is both creator of all things and the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's victorious over death. In verse one, it talks about, Jesus says, I'm the one who holds the seven stars and walks amongst the churches, the lampstands. He is massive, big enough to hold creation, to conquer death for you and me. And yet, he says, here I am, I walk amongst you. You know like how Superman has Lois Lane? I think that's the right combination. 
Superman is like everyone wants Superman, right? But who does Superman want? Lois Lane. Friends, you, we, the church, <laughs> this is going to sound so cheesy and you're going to laugh. We're his Lois Lane. <laughs> he wants you. You are the one that he desires. And in all of his love, these letters, these messages to the churches, they don't come in anger. He's not giving a message written in anger to the church saying, shame on you. He's writing it as a risen victorious king who is offering the very best of everything he can offer and receiving the very worst of his people. And he's still saying, come, return to me. Even at our worst, he gives us his best. That's who Jesus is. I mentioned that I had trouble writing this um, this week because every time I, I just thought about those days, I longed for them. And I, and I actually would find myself down at the piano and singing in worship instead of writing my message. <laughs> and that's good, I think. But I wonder if you have felt that. I wonder if you have felt that slow drift where the things that once flowed out of the overflow have become a bit more duty, dutiful, or like a chore, a discipline where perhaps there's not as much life flowing from it as there should be. I wonder if you long and if you yearn for a renewal of that first love love. Friends, Jesus promises us in that passage, that for those who overcome, who overcome the temptation of complacency and compromise, the ones who overcome the drift and who keep Jesus at the center, he promises that we will eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. Jesus Christ is the one from whom we are nourished. He is the one that leads us into the paradise and presence of God. It's so beautiful because as I said, it doesn't come as a condemnation, but as an invitation. I long for that first love fire, do you? I long for that to be restored in my life. I love being in the presence of Jesus. I love singing and, and worshiping. And I think that that's such a, an easy way and a simple way for us to be in his presence. But the best thing we can do is just to think about him. What were those days like for you? What was that moment like? Remember, Jesus is the one who pursues us, and he wants you. And he warns us in the church of Ephesus, the message, 
that the flame will go out if we do not keep the first love, love burning. The fire that burns in his eyes is his love for you and he's with you and he's among you. So I think what we're gonna do um, is just give an opportunity to reflect and to think about that a little bit and then just spend some time in worship. Um, I don't know exactly what that will look like and might be a little awkward at first, but we're gonna put some questions up on the screen. And if you are in a place in your heart today where you long for that first love, love, to remember, to go back to that place, to have that rekindled, I just wanna invite you to join me in worship. And that can look like many different things. We'll have some questions up on the, um, the screen that will just help guide you to, through some of those, through those things. Um, and when you want to, or if you want to, you can join in singing. And if you don't know the words, that's okay. What this time is, and, and you know what I, Mike and I were talking about before the service, um, it's not about the music and it's not about the, the words that we sing, although they are uh, very relevant and, and good and helpful for us to put into words what we're trying to express. The biggest, most beautiful and wonderful way to, to rekindle that first love flame with the risen Jesus Christ, the victorious one, is to sit with him. Just be with him. How often do we have 10 minutes when we're already seated, we're already in a moment or been in the spirit of worship where we just get to linger in his presence and just remember. So I'm going to just go to the keyboard and Mike is gonna come and say a couple things. As Laura goes to the keyboard, I wanna just invite you to prepare your hearts just to respond together and that'll look different for each of us. You may feel compelled to worship. You may feel compelled to sit and reflect, and that's wonderful as well. What we're thinking about today is what Jesus spoke to the church in Ephesus. And as Laura defined, they had a problem, and it's a relatable problem, isn't it? It's the kind of problem that caused them and could cause us to be known for being more about something or against something than being in love with someone. I think in Ephesus, they had Starbucks. And Jesus had heard. He was in Starbucks too, by his spirit. And he overheard some of the Christians of the church of Ephesus. And they were followers of him and his way. But when they would talk together, they spent more time talking about what they're for or what they're against and not talking about whom they're in love with. And they also had social media in Ephesus, ancient Turkey. It was really advanced, it was amazing. And when Jesus would scroll through their pages of social media, he saw what the Christians there were for. He saw what they were against, but there was very little evidence of who they were in love with. And I, I can relate all too well. I don't know about you. And I wish it wasn't so. And so Jesus sends this message to invite the hearts of the Ephesian church 2,000 years ago the Church of Comox in 2023 to recognize the lay of the land and say, wait, 
this isn't the direction I want to go. I want to follow the way of loving and knowing Jesus. Amen? So Laura's going to begin to play. There's questions on the screen. I encourage you to take a moment to read through them all. We might give a minute and a half, two minutes or so for you just to reflect. And then Laura's going to begin to sing. And I invite you, if you want to sing along, begin to. Allow this to be part of the rekindling of a flame of passion in your soul for today, for this week, and for moving forward in faith together. Let's reflect and then respond together. I don't know if we have a prayer ministry team available today. If you are here, I don't see Juan and Lisa. Yeah, if you can make yourselves available right now, up front here, whoever's serving in prayer ministry today. As Laura was talking about this picture of Jesus walking through the room and looking at you, at that same time, I was being reminded of several times in the Gospels where Jesus goes up to somebody who has a very obvious need. It's visible. You can see what it is. And yet he has the gall to ask them this question. What do you want me to do for you? And your need might be obvious, but there's something in the heart of God that loves to hear what it is you're longing for. And so would you allow Jesus today, as we conclude, to ask you, what do you want me to do for you today? Some of you need to come forward and receive prayer with somebody from this team. Some of you need to just voice that to him as you stay in your seats and worship. But I invite you to, to voice to him, to put words to answering that question from him to your heart. What do you want me to do for you today? If that's you and you need to receive prayer as we conclude today, would you come forward? This team's available for you. Laura's going to continue to lead in worship. So please, let's respect this room as a place for worship and prayer. If you want to chat, head out of this room to the lobby or outside, and that'll be great. Father, we thank you for what you're doing in our lives. We welcome the work of your spirit to rekindle the flame of first love, love in each of our hearts. Do something in our lives this week and help us to do what we did at first. Not routine, not going back to structure and system, but going back to the heart of loving Jesus this week. We welcome that work in our lives. In Jesus' name, we pray this. And everyone said, amen. amen. Let's continue to worship together. If you do want to hang out, go outside right now.